Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is V. Neal, a three-time Oscar winner and makeup effects designer whose credits include Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and many other iconic films. In today's conversation, the 70-year-old and I discuss a wide range of topics, from V's early love for universal monsters and makeup legends like Jack Pierce and Lon Chaney, and how the appreciation for makeup history fueled her desire to open her very first makeup school, Legends Makeup Academy, the challenges of breaking into the union as a female makeup artist in the 1970s, and how a series of failed makeup tests led to Michael Keaton's look for Beetlejuice, her creative relationship with director Tim Burton, as well as Johnny Depp, with whom she created the iconic look of Captain Jack Sparrow, all of this and much more. I'm extremely grateful that we got to episode 50, and if you enjoy the show, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes of the podcast. Look for Soundstage Access across social media to catch a preview of the many guests we'll be interviewing next. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. V, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. It's a true pleasure. I thought we would take things all the way back to your early inspiration, you know, and we should probably talk about the legacy of Jack Pierce and the Universal Monsters of the 30s and 40s, because I know that these projects were the ones who inspired you when you were a kid. And I wonder, you know, why do you think you connected with monster makeup specifically on such a deep level? And in terms of their execution now, how has your appreciation for the work of Jack Pierce evolved from the way you looked at them then to the way you look at the work now? Wow, those are great questions. You know, Jack Pierce was so innovative for his time. And I mean, the fact that he created those characters with the little technology that he had back then is just astounding. And I mean, I think that to recreate those characters, I would almost like to do it exactly the same way because they will come out the same way. I mean, like the Frankenstein monster, you can sculpt a Frankenstein monster that looks like Jack Pierce's, but when you put it on, it's not going to look the same. It's not going to have the heart and the aesthetic and the edginess and the creepiness of it that that one had, because that just had that rawness to it, you know, that we don't get anymore. Everything we do now is really slick and looks really pretty. And, you know, even the ugliness of it is beautiful because the techniques we use are so grandiose now, and everybody is so technically apt at what they do. And of course you always want to hire the best sculptors and the best mold makers and best of everything. So I think his techniques just gave it such a raw creepy, scary look that I don't even know that you could actually recreate those characters unless you did it the same way. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the role of women in the makeup industry and then you entering the union because the industry itself, it sounds like the makeup industry was established through the work of great people like Lon Chaney and John Chambers and Dick Smith. And for a job that often requires grace and precision, especially with beauty makeup, you naturally picture a woman doing it. And yet men were the ones who at least publicly were pioneering that side of things. So by the time you enter the business in the mid seventies, 
it sounds like there are some men who are not only intimidated by the fact that you could meet their skill level, but also kind of developing techniques of your own. So could you explain what the title of a 30-day wonder meant upon you entering the union? And did you ever wonder how your experience would have differed if you tried to establish yourself just 10 years before or after? Well, 10 years before, it probably would not been possible. But I have to tell you, I recently, well, in the past 10 years, because I met with a group of women who were the first women actually in the union, like myself, and we had a luncheon and we were talking about it. There was actually two makeup women that worked that they buried at the studios. One of them did Marlena Dietrich. So there were definitely a couple of women in there, but you never heard about them because they just buried them someplace in the studio and, you know, never let them out of their room, basically. But, you know, prior to that, women were basically relegated to being body makeup artists or being hairstylists. They were not makeup artists. And, and like you said, I always felt it was kind of funny that men were the makeup artists and doing all these beautiful women because it's like, what do they know about it? They don't even wear it, you know, and we wear it. We can do it really well. You know, we've had a lot of practice. But to come in to this business, like you said, as a 30 day wonder. That was really a trip because, of course, right away, just getting in, number one, I was a woman. So that was kind of an iffy thing for all these makeup men. And you have to remember back then they were all older. They had all been in there a really long time. And being a 30-day wonder is basically you were allowed to come in the union without taking the makeup test, which was a very rigorous two-day test that you had to take back then. And you had to have 30 days working on a picture that went signator within this certain time frame, which I don't remember what it was now, but it was sometime in the fall or something. Anyway, so getting in as a 30-day wonder, you basically were just let in and nobody knows your skill level, what you know how to do, what you don't know how to do. And you're a woman, so you're kind of basically just kind of looked down upon, period, because they figured, what does this little girl know how to do? You know, I was in my 20s, you know? And so the first few times, I'm, I'm going to digress here, the first few times I went on on jobs, I was hired by guys that wanted to just to put me in a room and check me out. Like they gave me sponges to cut or pencils to sharpen. That, that happened to me on Dynasty. The gentleman that was the makeup artist on Dynasty, whose name I do not remember now, but he literally gave me a box of pencils. These are the ebony pencils that we used to use to create eyebrows back then, a lead pencil. Gave me a box of pencils and a bag of sponges and said, go over in that room and cut these sponges and sharpen these pencils. So I went and I about an hour or so later, I came back out and I said, okay, I'm done. What would you like me to do now? He said, you're done. He said, show me what you did. Well, I had had a really great mentor. You know, Fred Phillips had taught me how to do all that stuff already. So I brought him back out and he went, wow. He said, these are, these are really good. And I said, well, thank you. And I said, um, I wanted to say something like, well, maybe now you'll let me do some makeup. But I just shut my mouth and made nice and <laughs> carried on. And, you know, he they invited me back again. And then a couple of days later, they called me up and they said, Joan Collins was on the show. She says, Joan's makeup artist is going on a vacation. We'd like you to come in and take care of Joan while she's gone. And I went, oh, what? <laughs> you know, the star of the show, what? <laughs> and they said, oh, don't worry. You don't have to do her makeup. She does herself. You just have to hold her bag. And I went, okay, I can do that. <laughs> but that was a trip. <laughs> You know, you mentioned Fred Phillips, and I thought this would be a good moment to take a second to talk about his work for anyone who isn't familiar. He worked on the original Star Trek TV show. And, you know, even though he passed in, in 93, I know that his mentorship meant a great deal to you and your life. So I was wondering, you know, when you 
discuss his creative footprint in the industry. Why do you think his work was so successful and how did working with him and knowing him make you a better makeup effects artist? I don't know that Fred actually taught me so much makeup as it were, but the fact that he was so open and friendly and charming and would like include me in conversations that he would be having with other people, makeup artists and such. And also at the time I was, when I met him, I was with a makeup effects artist, Steve Neal, and he was the gentleman that taught me how to do makeup. What he knew he taught me how to do. And then of course I, you know, carried on from there, but Steve and I would get these jobs that we would create the prosthetics or the creature or whatever for, but we could never go on set with them because they were union jobs. So I would always call up Fred and say, Hey, Fred, can you go do this job for us? Blah, blah, blah. And he would say, yeah, sure, honey, I'll go. So eventually what that led into was I got in the union finally. And one day I remember this as clearly as if it was yesterday, I was in my den and the phone rang and I picked up the phone and it was Fred. And he said, Hey V he said, um, you work with Bill Shatner before, right? And I said, yeah, I, I did um, that crappy little movie Kingdom of the Spiders with him. He said, well, okay, that's good. He said, you know, they're they're going to do a Star Trek movie. Do you do you think you want to come and work on that with me and, and do Bill's makeup? And I, I almost dropped the goddamn phone. I went, I said, I, yes, of course I want to do a Star Trek movie. Are you out of your mind? Of course I want to do it. We were all Trekkies. I mean, you know, that was like, you know, the go-to sci-fi show back then. And um, I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. So that was so neat to actually be able to go and work with Fred. And then I got to see, you know, what he was doing. And, and I realized that I probably at that point probably had a little bit more experience with some more updated techniques than he did, but he showed me like lots of cool old tricks that only the old timers would know how to do and stuff that, you know, I may or may not even realize I still use, but it was so fantastic to be around him. And Charlie Schramm was there. Charlie Schramm ran prosthetics for us. I mean, there was just so many cool things. And I met a lot of like the old timey makeup artists that had been around for a while who probably had worked on Planet of the Apes TV show or something. And most of them were just freaking hacks, but they still were using spirit gum and duo. I mean, basically we all were still using spirit gum and duo at that point. I think we did because I remember changing them out and telling them not to use their spirit gum. And of course they didn't pay any attention to me. Anyway. You know, you mentioned Steve Neal and Rick Baker who were collaborating with you in those early years. And it's important for listeners to understand that there's many steps to, you know, makeup in general. And you expressed the fact that you enjoyed less of the lab work in, in favor of application, which as you mentioned, thanks to Fred, sometimes you could do one side of the job, but not the other. You would have to pass that over. So I, I was kind of interested, you know, to, to talk about your transition from fabrication to application, you know, your path of self-education as well. The fact that you didn't go to makeup school, you know, whatever that would be. And, and we'll talk about uh, cinema makeup school in general, the opportunities that people may have today. But I wonder in what ways do you think the absence of a formal degree limited and contributed to your earlier projects? And what did spending so much time making appliances teach you by the time you finally got to move on to application? Number one, back then, the only thing I had was a Richard Corson book. So I had to you know, figure that out. And then, of course, what I learned from Steve and his buddies and then we were also like Rick Baker and, and eventually Greg Cannon. And we would just all hang out in Rick's garage and 
we would call up Dick Smith and ask him questions and stuff. But, you know, I learned a lot from Rick as well because I would hang out with him. What I didn't learn from Steve, you know, we would all learn from Rick, which he learned from Dick. So it was kind of like a big family. And there were so few of us, you know, we all shared jobs. Like Rick would call me up and say, hey, V, can you go do this job? Do you know how to do this? Or, or I would get a phone call from some production company and they'd say, we need blah, blah, blah. Do you know how to do it? And I go, yes, I do. Hell, I had never done that before. I didn't know how to do it, but I figured I, it was kind of like cooking to me. If you knew what it tasted like, you might be able to figure out how to make it. And I figured, okay, I got all the ingredients to make this makeup effect. I'm going to figure it out. So I would just kind of do little tests on my own ahead of time. And most of the time, the stuff that I did, you know, I watched every TV show that had injuries in it or monsters or whatever. And I felt that a lot of the times the stuff that I was doing came out better than what I had seen on film or on TV, because just I spent more time at it. My mother always called me a neat Nick when I was a kid. So I always was really anal about making sure everything looked right and was perfect. And I think a lot of times men aren't as patient with things, so they don't really go crazy and try to make it look as good as possible because they're in a hurry to get it done. So I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why not having a formal education and being taught to hurry up and get it done was one of those things that, yes, I maybe that helped. I don't know. And also the fact that I had to figure out a lot of it, you know, and figuring out things, it's like, you know, that's the mother of invention. If you don't really know how to do it and you have to figure it out, you might come up with some really cool new idea that nobody had ever thought about. Or you have some ingredient that, wow, maybe this will work. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I used to see that on Face Off all the time. I went, oh, my God, I can't believe they did that. And look what they used. It's like, that's crazy. Necessity is definitely the mother of invention. And I think a lot of things can be taught that way. And I think, you know, you said something about cinema makeup school. Well, I am no longer with cinema makeup school. Let's just be clear about that. I am actually opening my own school this year called Legends Makeup Academy. Congratulations. Thank you. We are going to be teaching a lot about makeup history. That's why I'm so happy that you're doing this and you have these, these podcasts with all this history and knowledge. It's because I think that's one of the things that's not taught at schools is where did we start? How do we start? Who are the people that taught us? And a lot of these kids that are coming in have no idea. I used to go into those classrooms and I'd start talking about somebody and they all looked at me like deer in the headlights, like, what are you talking about? And I'm thinking, how did you get here if you don't even know who came before you? Like, what did you just watch Instagram or something? You wanted to go to makeup school? I mean, that's pitiful. So I'm really going to be focusing on, you know, the people that came before, like the Jack Pierce's, the Dick Smith, like who did what? And, you know, who were the characters that were in our original horror films and how did they spread out and become other characters? I want to do makeup history. I want to do character history. I want them to know how those things evolved and how did we get to where we are in makeup. And I think that's very important right now. I just feel like we mentioned Jack Pierce a moment ago, and I figured since you're talking about these great icons, I can't shake off the presence of, of Lon Chaney in general. Lon Chaney would be the kind of person who not only had knowledge of makeup, but would be applying the makeup on himself. To be doing it on such a regular basis for multiple movies and multiple looks, well, in the silent films, almost all the actors did their own makeup. So it was not a matter of getting somebody else to do it. It was part of their job was to do their own makeup. And some of them were just better than others at it. And some of them felt, um, I'm not sure if it was Lon Chaney or I, I was reading about him a year ago. I think he felt that if he knew how to change himself or alter his character, he would get more jobs. 
And that is one of the reasons why the actors did their own makeup so that they could keep working and they could be different actors. They could be different people in every movie that they worked on. I just thought that he was innovative and he just liked doing makeup. But no, I mean, it was out of necessity, more desirable to the studios as well. I've got to get away from here. Baylor the gypsy was a werewolf. I killed him with that silver cane. I was bitten. Look, the pentagram. That scar could be made by most any animal. Yes, but it's the sign of the werewolf. We were talking about formal degree, but also I was wondering, because you spent so much time making appliances before you got to apply them, I was wondering if the making part taught you anything that got you more ready by the time you, you stepped into appliances. I actually never made them. I helped Steve do that, but it was never my forte. And I knew that. I mean, I sculpted and I helped do stuff like that, but I didn't like making molds and I didn't like running rubber. It ruined my oven at home because <laughs> that's where I used to do it. But I never liked being trapped in a room with a bunch of stinky stuff doing that, you know, and I was much better around people and I was much better about the application. As I said, I wasn't afraid to take extra time to make it look perfect. And I mean, and Rick Baker used to joke, they just say, give it to V, she can blend a dime into somebody's face. Because I was just so anal about it. I really wanted everything to be perfect. I mean, I figured out that I could peel the back end off of a thick edge and stick it down. And I, I used a spirit gum and then duo on top of it. I could like soak the spirit gum in and squish the foam flat enough so that it would blend in. I mean, I just did all kinds of crazy stuff to try to figure out how to make it work better. The first project I want to ask you about was Beetlejuice, because to create a character as iconic as that, I wonder when designing a character, how much of your time and resources are usually spent on, on hair sometime? And how do you try and use not only shape, but also color and texture as tools to design a makeup that could end up being very visually striking? I mean, Beetlejuice was a weird kind of dealio. I was just talking about this yesterday, but you know, originally, Tim's drawings of the Beetlejuice character, he just looked kind of like a derelict wearing a trench coat. You would expect him to be opening up his coat and exposing himself. And the first couple of test makeups I did, he looked like a derelict. He just looked dirty and nasty. And it was like, oh, no, we don't really want to look at this guy. You know, it was just not appealing, not entertaining, not not anything, you know. So I altered it a couple of times. And then I said to Tim, I said, I said, okay, dude, can I just take him back and do what I want to do this time? And he goes, yeah, go ahead. Just go and try something. I said, okay. So Steve Laporte was working with me and we were talking and I don't know exactly when this came into the mix, but Michael didn't want to have his nose that he has normally. So he wanted to look, maybe us give him a broken nose. So I said, well, Steve, do you have any broken nose appliances laying around at home from something else you've already done? And he said, no, he says, but I have some swollen lips. I said, okay. So we took these two swollen lips and we put one on this side of his nose and one on the other side of his nose. And we gave Michael a broken nose. And then of course we made a bald cap for him that we put on every day. We did that. And I thought, you know, this guy should look like he crawled out from underneath a rock. That's what he should look like. He is coming up out of the ground. Let's just make him look like he's got mold and stuff all over him. I don't know. Let's think out of, outside of the box. So I sent a, a driver off to the hobby store. And I said, would you get me some of that stuff that they put on model train sets and stuff where they make grass and bushes with and get me like two or three colors and get me some moss 
at the time we were using this adhesive called 355. So I painted 355 on him, just running up from underneath his collars and out from underneath his wig and made it all squiggly. So it looked like it was just kind of moss trailing off onto his face and a really nasty one around his mouth. And originally, I got to back up a minute. Originally, Tim and I had just discussed about making the people in the afterlife pastel colored. But when I did the test for that and I saw what the lighting was going to be on the set, it was much too dark. And I thought, well, they're just going to, it's going to not read well. So we made the colors much more vibrant for all the people in the afterlife, like you see in the waiting room, because it read much better on film. So when it came to doing Beetlejuice, I thought, well, he's never in those scenes with those dark sets. And I said, maybe we can make him pastel. And I thought he would be kind of neat. It'll set him apart from all the other ones. And he's he's a bad boy anyway. So <laughs> I thought, we'll just do him really pale yellow. And funny enough, when I put it on his skin, it sort of almost red white because all, all it really did was take all the color out of his skin and make him really pale. So that's why everybody thinks he's white when indeed he is actually about the palest yellow that I could find. So that's how he got to be that color. And I said, you know, Tim has these dark circles around his eyes. But I said, I think if we make them just look like dark circles, it's not going to be kind of funny. And I said, maybe we should make them a little bit more defined. So he looks very, you know, cartoony and has is more like a caricature. So that's what I did. And when I showed it to Tim, he loved it. And that's how we got Beetlejuice. You know what's really beautiful about this? You two kids pick me. You didn't have to, but you pick me. It makes me want to kiss you guys. Come on. Come no. On. Give me one. No. You're no. hard. Huh? All right. Let's get down to this. Here. Here. Who do I have to kill? No. We just want to get some people out of our house. Ah, I understand. I understand. Well, look, in order to do that, I'm really going to have to get to know you guys. You know, we got to get closer. Move in with you for a while. Get to be real pals. You know what I'm saying? My wife and I would like to ask you a couple of questions. Sure, sure, sure. sure, sure. Go ahead, shoot. Well, well, for instance, uh, what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? We should note that Beetle just wasn't the only film you worked on with Tim, because I was going to bring up Edward Scissorhands, which you talked about being one of the makeups that perhaps you would love to redo today. And and I did redo it. It was on my, I did it a few months ago. It's I put it on my Instagram page. Because you mentioned the fact that the scars on Johnny's face, were you were not 100% fond of the way. They were dreadful. Some of them were like these little skinny foam worms. They were awful. It was so hard to put them on. They were just like these wiggly. And then if the foam didn't set up right, they would like twist on themselves. Oh my God, it was a nightmare. You spoke about the fact that as you were working on that, you realized that by changing the shape of the shadows around the eyes, you would create kind of a different expression. And I think it's no secret that Tim has an affinity and a passion for these kind of similar looks, you know, which very much define his characters. Anyone, you know, from Beetlejuice to Sweeney Todd, maybe Danny DeVito as the Penguin. So in your mind, why do you think he's so drawn to the similar aesthetic that seems to fit all the characters? And why do they translate so well to the big screen once you take this 2D sketch and have to turn it into a 3D makeup? I mean, he is an artist. He went to art school. So he it's just his style. It's, you know, like anybody's style, like Keen's style or, you know, a Picasso or, you know, any one of these artists that does caricatures, let's say, or characters, 
they have a style and that is his style. And I don't know why it, it works so well on the big screen other than the fact that people like fantasy characters. And indeed, these characters are all fantasy characters as far as I'm concerned. I mean, even the penguin, because it's a penguin for crying out loud, you know, and he's creepy and he's scary, but he's still a fantasy character. So I think his aesthetic really lines in well with fantasy. You know, Sweeney Todd is a different animal, but that was, you know, something that's been done before. But just even his animated movies are the same way. It's just a really pleasing aesthetic and it's a little quirky and it's a little off kilter. And sometimes it's a little disturbing, but it's always fun to look at. So I think it's just because it's so pleasing and it, it kind of resonates with everybody in one way or another. You know, I just want to ask you for a second about your relationship with, with Johnny Depp, because I think he's a performer who understands just how much makeup can be a storytelling device, the ability of constantly transform yourself. So I was wondering, you know, how did your creative relationship with Johnny evolve over the course of the years? And in what ways do you do you think he's an active part of the makeup design process when creating characters together? Well, I think Johnny really enjoys being characters. It's kind of bums me out in a way because he's such a really good actor and he doesn't need to hide behind a makeup to make him just as good in one role as in another role. But it is kind of that Lon Chaney thing where he believes he can just be, you can just transform yourself and be a completely different person once you get inside one of those makeups because you are. And I think that's part of the enjoyment for him. We all know he can be a serious actor and that he's really good at it. I mean, I did the movie Blow with him and he wasn't in anything but, you know, uh, period makeups. He was just, you know, from one year to the next, he transformed, but was still a serious film and it was still serious acting and he wasn't hiding behind some crazy, you know, fantasy character. So, I mean, if you look at Gilbert Grape, Chocolate, any of them, you know, there's like a million movies he's done where he's not in a crazy makeup. It's just those are the ones that everybody remembers because they're so wild and they're so kooky. So they remember all those Willy Wonka, you know, and whatever else he's other crazy things he's done, you know? No, not good. Stop. Not good. What are you doing? You burned all the food, the shade, the rum. Yes, the rum is gone. Why is the rum gone? One, because it is a vile drink that turns even the most respectable men into complete scoundrels. Two, that signal is over a thousand feet high. The entire Royal Navy is out looking for me. Do you really think that there is even the slightest chance that they won't see it? But why is the rum gone? How much of your process is about sketching ideas and how much is it about really working with a performer to try out different looks and then only once you see them fleshed out, understanding what works or what doesn't for a specific movie? I think for me, I don't actually really sketch out the performer's look ahead of time. I like to do test makeups because you can put it on a piece of paper, but until you see it move, you don't really know what you're looking at. You know, I mean, I have done things where I've had, you know, Photoshop things prepared and stuff, and it gives you an idea, but it doesn't really show you what it's going to be like when it starts moving around. And that's what I really like to see is the actual, you know, 3D portion of it. I want to see, you know, what the actor does with it and how it moves with their face and how they can bring it to life. And does it aid in their character development, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the ideal way to see what a character is going to look like is to actually put them in the makeup and let them start acting in it. Because then you'll know if you have to alter something and they can say, you know, I would like it to be more like this, or I think if we did this, it would really make me look scary. Or 
if we did this, I think I'd be a lot more sympathetic to the people. This might be a little too much. Maybe I'm too strong or I don't look vulnerable enough or, you know, whatever that might be. You know, it's just like when I did the Hunger Games, when I was doing the character of Effie on the first film, Gary Ross, the director, didn't really let me do what I wanted to do with Effie. He wanted her to be cruddy and ugly and not aesthetically pleasing. He wanted almost like the people in the Capitol to be almost grotesque in their beauty, which I can understand that. But unfortunately, it doesn't really translate to film because there weren't enough of them in the movie to really show that. And Effie was not a good example of that. So I actually thought that Effie should have been beautiful all the time because that's what people expected from people in the Capitol. So that didn't happen in the first film. She just looked a little odd to me the whole time. But in Catching Fire, I got to do what I wanted to do because Francis was just said, yeah, go for it. Just have fun. And of course, we had a new costume designer, too. So Effie had wild Gautier costumes. And I went, oh, I'm going to have so much fun on this one. And she just came to life on that film. She was just exploded. So it's a whole different aesthetic. And it was like really more like what I thought Effie was supposed to be like, you know? Well, let me let me dig in a, a little bit about that. I, I did want to touch on Hunger Games because I think it's it's important to acknowledge your collaboration with the wig and the wardrobe department to create context for listeners. Francis is Francis Lawrence, the director, and Effie is the character played by Elizabeth Banks. My first quote for today, this one is yours. Quote, in the case of a character like Effie, makeup always came last. Wardrobe would dictate her profile, which included not just a costume, but the hair as well. And with the eye makeup, we were trying to avoid a look that echoed the 70s or 80s and chase something that felt avant-garde that you'd really only see in magazines, but nobody would wear in real life, close quote. So as a makeup designer, I wonder why is it important for you to excel not only in the application process, but also all aspects of makeup design, including beauty makeup, and how did you try to work with the wardrobe department on that film and in general? Well, makeup is kind of the crowning glory on something that's as odd as that. I mean, you have to get your profile first. You don't do it the other way around. I don't do some big elaborate makeup job and then I have to make the hairdresser figure out what she's going to wear for her hair because I've done something so kooky that now she's limited, you know? And first of all, we really had to see what she was wearing because then you have to pick the colors to go with it. You have to find out okay, what's going to be complimentary to her wardrobe? She was always so well put together. So then we figure out what color the hair is going to be. And what is that hairstyle profile going to look like in conjunction with this wardrobe? Because things had big collars, you had butterflies, you had all kinds of weird shit everywhere. So you had to work the hairdo around that and you had to get your profile. So Linda and I, the hairstylist, Linda Flowers, funny enough, she and I worked very closely together. We would have the wardrobe. We'd come, if we could, we could hang the wardrobe in the makeup trailer momentarily, you know, they were guarded, but we'd have it in there for a few minutes. We'd just start brainstorming. She would say, okay, I'm going to kind of do this, this, and this. And what do you want to do? V? And I said, well, I'll start picking out, like, let's just say the butterfly outfit. And I thought, well, I really want the butterflies to be the key aspect of the makeup job. So I don't want to go too crazy with painting all kinds of weird stuff on her. So if indeed you ever saw her, you know, everybody thinks that that's the wildest makeup ever. If you saw her, Without her wig and her wardrobe on, it was a very simple, well-placed, well-thought-out makeup that included lots of glued-on butterflies. And I just took certain colors from the butterflies and en enhanced her eyes with those, as well as her eyelashes. And I just kind of made everything all tie together. The makeup just brought everything together so that everything was symbiotic and just was a homogenized, beautiful picture, you know? 
I'll ask you about facial anatomy in a second, but what you're talking about, it sounds like understanding how specific elements, very tiny details can change the whole appearance. You guys were, were bleaching sometimes eyebrows, both on women and men, which transforms the face completely. It does. It's the simplest thing to do. And it completely changes the look of somebody to remove their eyebrows. It's the wildest thing. You don't realize how much you're well, you do now because eyebrows are such a thing. I mean, everybody's got these hideous giant eyebrows now that are look like they're tattooed on. I really don't care for the look myself, but you know, it's one of those things right now, but they're so expressive, you know, and when you remove them, it makes the face void of kind of expression. So you sort of have to enhance all the other things around it and paint the other pieces of the makeup on there to give the person expression. So it was just really a lot of fun for all my background makeup artists because I had 50 artists back there creating all these wacky makeups on all the capital people. And fortunately, some of the best ones you never got to see in the movie because the ADs didn't put them in front of the camera or I don't know what the hell happened. You know, it was that scene in the auditorium when all the tributes were up on the bandstand thing back there. We said, okay, this is our A group. Put all these guys in the front. And we went and we looked and we went, where are they? They didn't put them in front. What's, what's going on? And you just had these sort of mundane looking, boring people sitting there. I went, what? I was like, I was like, damn, everybody did such an incredible job on all these cool makeups. And you kind of get to see them at one point when they're walking through a crowd or something, but just for brief glimpses. And there was so many extraordinary makeup jobs done on all of these people in the background that were just amazing. I was blown away what work came out of everybody. And people had so much fun creating. There were some that were just masterpieces, I got to tell you. On a show as large as that, you're obviously the makeup department head, but you have a wonderful team that surrounds you. And I wonder for you, in a case like that, when you have sometimes dozens or hundreds of extras, how do you go about delegating how much you're able to supervise and how much to just hand off to your other team members? I hired the department head to run background. So they were like on their own movie. I mean, basically they were in charge of making sure that everybody was working properly. Everybody had whatever they needed. So they were running their own team. I mean, I oversaw everything obviously, and I would go back and make sure everything was working well. But I mean, I had to have somebody who was really good at delegating and was a department head in their own right to be running that whole area because it had to be run like a machine. I mean, there had to be people moving in and out of those chairs all the time. I even had a makeup PA that understood makeup and she would help get everybody in and out of the chairs quickly and make sure that, you know, everybody got to where they were supposed to be. Because if they worked multiple days, everybody had a little bag that they carried with them with their eyelashes or whatever crazy thing was made for them. Or if they had a specific lipstick or if they had anything that was specific to their character, you know, all the background people would have those pieces with them. And, you know, it, it all had to be run like a machine, as I said. We spoke about, obviously, the wonderful new program, which you're now establishing. You have mentored a lot of artists yourself. And I wonder what kind of creative qualities do you look in the team members you bring on? And in your mind, when do you know an artist is ready to make the jump to become a department head in their own right? Well, I don't know that I really know specifically what that is, but they have to be able to deal with people, obviously. More importantly, you have to be able to deal with production. Those are things that are really, really important as a department head because you are working one-on-one -on -one with production. You have to know how to talk to them. You have to know what to ask for to be able to take care of the people that are working for you, make sure that they're well looked after and nobody's you know, being mistreated. And you have to be a people person. You have to have good skills here. And 
as far as people that work with me when I was looking for things, what I would look for basically is I would almost rather work with a really nice person that gets along with everybody. That's, that's a pretty good makeup artist that you could help along or, or fix something if you had to then work with somebody that thinks they're so goddamn great. And they're just assholes because you are trapped in a trailer. You're trapped in a little box with these people. You don't want to work with somebody that's not nice. You know, so I, like I said, I would rather work with somebody who's pleasant to be around, who's a good makeup artist, who will be a good team member, and we all get along well together than, you know, somebody who's on put themselves on a pedestal because they think they're the god of makeup. Well, that's just fine and dandy. <laughs> Go be the god somewhere else. <laughs> Before asking about the next project, I figured this might be a good time to talk about the mental health in the makeup industry. Makeup artists are often the first people on set and the last ones to leave well beyond the regular 12 hours of a shooting day. And I'm thinking of films like Man on the Moon and The Grinch. And this is not to point fingers because I know he has apologized for it, but I was talking to Kazuhiro, who has been very open about the fact that working with Jim Carrey on those projects was not an easy experience. So how do you try and coach yourself and your team usually to endure a long production, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally as well? Oh God, that's a great question. I, I don't know that you can actually ever coach anybody about it. Usually they're going to know if they're, they're being hired by me, they're going to have a long day because most of my projects all, you know, have huge pre-calls because we're doing big makeups or we're doing a lot of makeups. And then we have to clean everybody up afterwards. And they always know that everybody's going to want to shoot for 12 hours. So your day is at least 14 hours, maybe 15 upwards of 16 hours a day. So you have to be prepared for that. And obviously, if people start getting tired, they start getting sick. So we try to take care of each other. And also, if we can, we'll switch out and let people go home early. You know, we'll rotate in and out so that people don't get too tired, that don't get too sick. If somebody has a long drive and we're on a location, I'll say, okay, you're going to go home early today because you have a long drive. I don't want you to get hurt on your way home. That's another thing. Now we we really make sure, like, if we are on, on like not even distant locations, but a long drive. Sometimes we will require the production to put us up because we don't want to have to drive back and forth and be, you know, because this is when people get hurt, you know, and have accidents. So there is that as well. But I think you just have to take care of yourself. Uh, make sure that you're getting enough rest. Don't go out partying at night when you know you really are only going to probably get five hours sleep. You want to make sure you get a really good five hours sleep. And I just try to take care of my crew and, and be as kind and as nurturing as possible. You know, we have all of our vitamins that we have in the trailer and all our little remedies that we keep from getting sick. And we just do what we can to keep it together. I want to do a complete 180 and ask you about a project, which I think doesn't get enough love. And it's uh, 1990s Dick Tracy. The makeups were designed by John Caglione Jr. and Doug Drexler. And the film features an array of incredible actors like Pacino and Dustin Hoffman, who are transformed into a gang of uh, cartoon-shaped monsters whose facial anatomy feels to really belong inside a comic book. So I know you, you were not a department head on that, but I was wondering if you could talk about memories from working on the set. And how did you observe the design of a very specific look that was tailored and sculpted onto the anatomy of a very specific actor. Let me just focus in on one character. I did Al Pacino. Uh, John said, V, I want you to do Al. You only have to do him. And if something happens, he doesn't work one day or you have extra time, you can help me do other characters. But I want you to do Al. 
And I want you to stay with him and make sure he's taken care of because he's the main guy. And I said, okay. So he put me in a room with a bunch of generic prosthetics. And he said, go in there, start putting on noses and chins and cheeks and brows until Al finds that he likes something and we get a character for him. And I said, okay. And he says, then I'll take that makeup and then I'll sculpt it for him. So that's what I did. I spent a whole day like, you know, Mr. Potato Head <laughs> with Al, putting all these different things on him until we found something that we both liked. And uh, we took pictures of it. And then John went back and re-sculpted the pieces for Al. And that's how we got the character of Big Boy. And we also did another thing. We wanted his ears to stick out. So John sculpted me these little wedges that I put behind Al's ears to pooch his ears out. And there was many times, this is a fun little story. There was many times where I used to have to replace Al's bottom lip because in the film, he spits a lot. <laughs> there was a lot of saliva shooting out of Big Boy's mouth because of all the screaming he did. And there was a couple of times where Al would come back from lunch and his lip would kind of be hanging. And I thought, well, how the hell did that happen? Well, Al had had Italian food for lunch and I found a piece of spaghetti inside one of his lips one day. <laughs> there was so much oil. I just like slid the lip off and there was a piece of spaghetti stuck in his lower lip. So there was many days where I had to switch out Al's lower lip after lunch just because of spit and or lunch menu. <laughs> oh, look what you did to your pretty tuxedo. Big boy, ain't we pals? No pals in this business, Lips. You taught me that. Sign it. The deed to the club, Ritz? That's right. I'm going into show business now. You're dirty, Lips. You need a bath. Not the bath! Not the bath, <laughs> Big Boy! Not the bath! <laughs> so often your job is about creating looks which are anatomically correct and true to life. And here came a movie where everybody just had such a goofy look, you know, flat top. I was watching pictures before they put the wig on. It's literally a flat top. He was cool. The Mumbles character, Dustin Hoffman, when he came in and did Mumbles, that was fun. I mean, I remember doing quite a few extras just for different stuff. Like when on the days when Al didn't work, like there was a movie theater scene where we did a whole bunch of extras that are coming out of a movie theater. And just on a funny kind of a note, I don't know how funny it was, but Milena Cannonera was the costume designer on the film. And she had a habit of telling the makeup artist what to do because of the period looks and stuff on everything. Oh, and also they did a treatment on the film, which altered colors on everybody's face. Like, Are you talking about the, the film processing itself? I don't know if it was called a silver wash, but anyway, it sort of had a sepia tone to it. And so we had to alter colors of makeup to accommodate the treatment that they were doing with the film, because it was something they did afterwards that we had no control over. So we had to do a lot of testing to figure out what they look like after they put this treatment on it. So one of the things was Bill Tuttle make us a rouge color and we called it DT blush, Dick Tracy blush. And it was a really bright coral color because in order to make anything look pink or red, it had to be bright, bright coral. So we use that color to punch life into the rubber. So in other words, when you looked at the things in person, they looked very peachy and very bright. But when you saw it on camera, they just looked flesh color just because the white would show through or change colors. It would change to a weird color. So we had to really pump up all this pink into which we still 
A lot of times with foam, you still do that. We just use different colors. We use a rose color usually. So a lot of these people were walking around with these bright orangey coral noses and chins and cheeks and stuff. And Melania came to the makeup department. She goes, you have to take that off. That's not period. You don't know. And we're trying to tell her that it won't read like that, but that's the way it has to be. And she goes, nope, take it off, take it off. I said, okay. So we took it all off. And this was the scene where they were all walking out of the movie theater. They couldn't use the footage because everybody had gray faces and she never came and talked to us again. It's important for people to realize that part of your job is not only designing or applying, but also maintaining that look during the day. And I wanted to ask you about Mrs. Doubtfire because I understand that one of the biggest challenges of that was controlling the edges of prosthetic made up of 13 overlapping pieces. And when you're sweating so much, you've got to make sure that the sweat doesn't come out from one of the edges. But I was just, you know, I was just curious to ask you about the evolution of that makeup specifically. Could you talk about, you know, some of the most drastic changes in regards to testing out the looks of how Mrs. Doubtfire could have looked? Well, I don't know that we did a lot of different testing, but we did do a couple. And the first day we did it, uh, Greg Cannon was there with me who designed the makeup. And, you know, I said, okay, Greg, so we'll do the makeup together. And I said, I'll follow your lead. You're the head. So he started doing it and we got done. I said, Greg. I said, he looks like an old man. It can't be a speckle fest like this. He, he can't really look old. He has to look like a little old lady, like a little old lady from Pasadena. You know what I mean? He has to look sweet and peachy and cute and like he has makeup on and he's, you know, a sweet little old lady. And I said, he looks like a scary old man and this isn't going to work, <laughs> you know? And so he said, well, I don't know. If I, and I said, well, we'll do another test tomorrow and let me do the makeup. So Greg went home and we did another test the next day. And I did him the way I wanted to do him. And that's basically what you see in the film. And I just wanted him to look like a sweet little old lady, you know, who puts her makeup on and goes out to work. And she might be a little odd, possibly, but you don't really, you can't put your finger on it. And it also had to look like he did it himself. So, you know, it couldn't be so bloody perfect that it looks like it was done by somebody else. So, you know, then we have that really fun scene with Harvey Firestein where he and his partner are doing all these makeups on him. And that was really fun to do too. But basically we wound up doing that like what you see in the film. And that was done probably the third makeup test we did on him. Daniel, hi. Could you make me a woman? Honey, I'm so happy. Oh, come I know you'd understand. <laughs> This gonna hurt? Don't whine, just relax. Are you sure? Just remember, pain is beauty. Okay, here we go. Take a deep breath. Instant eye lift. Wow. And you'll never see the strings, they'll be under the wig. The man has five o'clock shadow at 8.30 a.m. and you're worried about strings? All right, we'll start with makeup. I'm not gonna wax. Don't worry, we'll just lightly spackle. I feel like Gloria Swanson. You look like a mother. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. The first time we did the makeup, it was like a four hour job. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to take weight, you know, to, for the whole process. This was hair and makeup. And I said, we got to do it faster. He has to be able to get out on the set, you know, faster than this. So Stefan Dupuis came and started helping me do the makeup. And, you know, the more we did it, the shorter the time got. And also we went to dailies every day. So I could really look at it and see what was showing and what wasn't showing. So. I thought, well, hell, we're never going to see, I, you know, I'm putting four base colors. I'm speckling four base colors on underneath this thing. 
we're never going to see all those colors. It's not going to matter. By the time I get what I'm putting on top of it all, it's not even going to show. So I can eliminate that. So basically, I just fine-tuned it down to like three colors underneath. And it was all done with, we did Pax paints underneath, and then I started stippling rubber mask grease on top of it. And that's kind of what makes it look nice and creamy and pretty and soft. So, you know, by the time you get all that on there, you sort of are wiping out a lot of stuff. It's just basically you don't want that white foam to be showing through. So that's what you're trying to do is kill the foam and sort of give it a little bit of dimension. So you do have to stipple certain colors on underneath there to give a little bit of dimension. Otherwise it starts looking really flat. And we just kind of did teamwork. Stefan and I got everything on and got it colored down. And then I would do all the finishing touches on everything. And then we'd send them down to makeup and hair. And if I wasn't done quick enough, I'd go down there and finish him in hair because he needed to get out of there. You know, I mean, we needed to shoot. <laughs> you mentioned the fact that you did the makeup with foam latex as opposed to silicone. Do you think your approach would have been wildly different if you did that makeup today? Well, today they probably would do it with silicone, but I think today it would look a lot more realistic than it did back then. Silicone is just so much more finite. And like I said, everything looks really slick now. It would look really slick. <laughs> The last project I want to ask you about is obviously the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. And the reason I want to touch on the franchise is because it's a very interesting case study of your job being well beyond the makeup trailer. You know, we're talking about managing the micro compared to the macro. In this case, you're shooting on islands. I'm sure you got to request supplies that need to be shipped to the island weeks in advance. You're traveling all over. How do you try and manage your time and resources on a, on a shoot where you know you're moving around on location and the location is fighting against you? I'm sure there was a lot. We had to make sure that a lot of stuff got shipped ahead of time so that we had an overabundance because funny enough, I don't remember which one it was, but we were moving around from island to island. We kept ordering 10 gallons of alcohol and it would never come and Finally, one that we ordered three times before would finally show up and they would bring it from another island to us. At the end of the film, I remember 50 gallons of alcohol showed up someplace, the last place we were at. I went, oh my God, what are we going to do with all this alcohol? I mean, it just we just had to keep ordering and hoping that it would show up eventually somewhere because that's basically, we were using the illustrator palettes to color all the pirates. And admittedly, everybody was getting really tan, so... A lot of that was okay, but I mean, we still used it for the dirt and the sunburn and, you know, for all the other stuff that we were doing. So we needed to have our alcohol because that's what activated the product, but it was crazy as far as supplies go, you know, uh, just addressing the orchestration of another big crew. I mean, we had 50 makeup artists. They had 30 hairdressers and 50 makeup artists at one point when we were on one of the islands and getting everybody ready. And then, you know, especially like when we did this thing with all the cannibals, because they were in full body makeup, most of them, and they had mud. So we had big drums full of all these colored muds we were using. And it was just wacky. I mean, oh, it was a cacophony of color. Let's put it that way. It was, it was pretty fun. Stellan Skarsgård plays a bootstrap bill in the series. And over the course of the movie, his look as a character kind of intensifies. And I heard that they were going to switch to CGI midway through the looks. And you mentioned that Skarsgård, you know, was interested in sticking with the practical makeup, despite knowing how heavy it was going to get on his face. 
Obviously, this is just one example, but how does an actor being open and very passionate about the makeup process ultimately translate in a better makeup? Well, I think if the actor really wants to wear it, he's going to be working that makeup and making it look good. And Stellan, he really felt that it was really important for his character to actually feel that weight and feel all that heavy makeup on him because he was being transformed and it, it helped his character. It helped him to act. And he was really adamant about continuing to wear the makeup, even though he pretty much knew he could probably do it without it on. It was like much better for him to actually have it on. I said to him, Stellan, I said, I'll go to the studio and ask them if they can give us the budget to keep continue doing this as a makeup. And Joel Harlow, who's brilliant, he was sculpting it and applying it to him. And I said, Joel, do you want to keep? He said, yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do. He says, it sounds like cool, fun to me. Crash McCreary was designing all the different looks for Stellan and he designed the progression of the looks. And we just took Stellan's drawings and Joel sculpted all the pieces and we kept putting it on him and he loved it. I mean, the studio just gave us the okay and we kept making the pieces and continued to put Stellan in the makeup. And I think it worked really well. You know, it's always better to me to see something that's real than it is to see it as CGI. I mean, obviously we augmented little bits and pieces of the makeup with CGI, but when you have a practical makeup on an actor, it looks real. It's not an imaginary thing you're looking at. And you can tell because, well, in Pirates 2, I remember when I went to the screening of it and I saw Davy Jones, I was taken back. I was blown away how good it was. And the reason for that is because I worked really closely with John Knoll at ILM because originally we were going to do Davy as part makeup and part CGI. And we just decided that it would be better if he was all CGI. And when I saw that, it looked just like Bootstrap Bill's makeup. And the reason being was John captured Bootstrap Bill's makeup for all the textures and all of that. They scanned it, you mean? Evidently, he did something like that, but he took that and put it on all the other characters, all of Davy Jones and his, because I was astonished. I mean, my mouth was open the whole movie. Every time I saw Davy Jones, I couldn't believe it. When I went back to work the next day, Joel said, well, how did Bootstrap Bill look? And I said, oh my God, Davy Jones was like, unbelievable. I just kept going out of it. He goes, V, how did, Boot I said, Bootstrap looked amazing, but Davy Jones was like off the charts. Cool. You know? And I said, he looked just like Bootstrap. He was like the same textures and everything. He looked real. It was so cool. And I just thought, now that is a perfect example of how makeup and CGI can work together and really help each other to become better at what you do. I couldn't say anything more. That was just, John was a genius. You have a date to pay. You've been captain of the Black Pearl for 13 years. That was our agreement. Technically, I was only captain for two years, then I was viciously mutinied upon. Then you were a poor captain, but a captain nonetheless. Have you not introduced yourself all these years as Captain Jack Sparrow? <laughs> you have my payment. One soul to serve on your ship is already over there. One soul is not equal to another. Aha! So we've established my proposal is sound in principle, now we're just haggling over price. Gore Verbinski, the director, has been so open about the fact that it was not an easy production because it's my understanding they were shot back to back without completing material. Do you remember any of that impacting your schedule or process? It, you know, it. <laughs> you know, to have two scripts you know, running all the time and knowing, I mean, they were shot back to back, but they were also shot. Parts of them were shot at the same time because what we did was if we were at a location that was used by both movies, 
we would shoot both movies while we were there. So to figure out half the time, I would just say, okay, there are Chinese pirates. Okay, we're doing three. <laughs> you know, because our basic characters always look the same, you know, or if we knew if there was one character that was one of the Chinese pirates, you know, and then uh, Chow Young Fat, if he was working, I knew, we, you know, it's like, but Chow Young Fat, oh my God, he was, he was spectacular. He was the coolest guy ever. And he's so tall. Who knew? He's like six foot four. He's a giant. And he was the coolest guy. He was so funny. He just would joke with everybody on the set. He he was having so much fun. It was just kooky. But, I, you know, like I said, half the time, I just said, okay, if there's Chinese pirates, we're doing three, <laughs> you know. As I wrap this up, I figured we could do a little fun game of speed around. Whatever the first thing that comes to mind, you can say it out loud. What's a project you wish more people asked you about and why? Ooh, it has been a while since people asked me about pirates and there was so much going on in that. But you know what? I don't get asked a lot about the Hunger Games, which is kind of odd because there was four of those films. And I don't know if it's because it was a Yaw film or whatever. But, you know, the thing that I found so enriching about those films is as a makeup artist, we did everything. We did everything from disease makeups to avant-garde makeups. There was every single type of makeup that we've ever been taught in our whole career, except for age makeup in all four of those films. So as a makeup artist, it was a dream for me because we got to do every single thing we've ever been taught. And I'm rarely asked about anything in those films, which is kind of odd. You mentioned age makeups. What do you think divides a well-done aging makeup from a bad one when you see it on the big screen? Now I would say uh, it would have to be, you know, unless Greg Canham is doing it, it would have to be a silicone makeup. There's a lot of really, really good makeup artists out there now that are doing age makeups. But as far as separating them, I guess... They have to be silicone now because we know what they can look like. So for somebody to not do it well, and you have to have a really good grasp of anatomy and a lot of really good reference photos if you're sculpting something. And, you know, now they have, don't they have all these really cool apps now where you can put somebody's face in it and age them like how they would actually age? I mean, that's kind of great for a makeup artist, especially if they have to do an age makeup on somebody, they can almost use that between their wealth of knowledge with all their photos that they have, along with some sort of techniques like that, that's going to be amazing to have, I would think. Stan Winston is someone who understood how special effects, not to be confused with visual effects, but how practical special effects and makeup could really work off each other. So I was just wondering, you know, when you think of his legacy and your projects together, is there a story that comes to mind? I loved working with Stan Winston. And I used to... (laughs) He was so cute. I would, um, you know, everybody says, ah, he always takes credit for everybody's shit. And I said, so what? I, You know, he got him the job. He can take credit for whatever he wants. And I remember I'd call up Stan. I go, Stan, you're going to be doing blah, blah, blah. I really want to do that movie for you. I'll really do a good job for you. I said, you can take all the credit. I don't care. I just want to be able to work on that movie. And he would laugh at me. He goes, okay, V, you know, come on over. We'll talk about it, blah, blah, blah. But I, I loved working with him. I just thought he was the bee's knees, as they say. And he was great. And I was so sad when he passed. It was just, you know, it was kind of a shocker because nobody told me. And then all of a sudden I heard he was, and I went, what, what happened there? That's just crazy, you know? And we had so much fun. I remember when he used to come down to Galaxy Quest and I made him help me put on the Saris makeup one day. And I said, come on, we got to to get you in here and take pictures of you doing makeup, Stan. Get over here. And he created so much great technology that he was never recognized for. When we did the film AI, I had six months R&D on that film. And 
I'm telling you, I did like five different test makeups on Jude Law to make that synthetic character. And Stan did all kinds of crazy stuff for me to try on him. But one of the things that he really excelled at was innovation. And he created these makeups like the nanny and the baker and all those characters that had big portions of their face and their body missing. He created a technique that integrated blue screen fabric into a prosthetic. So what you were actually blending onto the face was the blue screen prosthetic that blended into the normal face as opposed to a prosthetic that blends into this, you know, let's just say not altering. It was a removal process. And he was never credited for the ingenious effect of creating those prosthetics that enabled the CGI to remove portions of the body. Because back then they didn't have the stuff that they have now. They had different techniques, but he enabled the visual effects artist to actually remove parts of the body with this blue screen technology that he had figured out with these prosthetics. And I just thought that was so innovative. And he, you know, nobody ever recognized him for that. I don't think they got it, you know? I'm so glad you brought up the project. For anyone listening, we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, which was meant to be Stanley Kubrick's final film after Eyes Wide Shut. And even though, unfortunately, you got sick, Steven Spielberg stepped in and brought the film across the finish line. If I am a real boy, then I can go back. And she will love me then. How? The blue fairy made Pinocchio into a real boy. She can make me into a real boy. I must find her. I must become real. There must be someone in the whole world who knows where she lives. As you mentioned, you're going to open your own program, so congratulations on that. If you were to sit down the first year of students and kind of make them study three movies on a makeup level, which movies do you think you would pick? I think it would depend on what class they were in because I'm going to be teaching them according to what class they're taking. I mean, even with the beauty classes, they don't even know who Wade Bandy was. It's like, hello. You know, you've got all these like iconic giant beauty makeup artists from, I mean, They don't even know who Max Factor was. They don't even realize. They just think it's a makeup. They didn't know it was a guy, you know? It's like, so I think depending on what class they're taking, all of the first day will be geared towards a little bit of history. And then we're going to tell you where we're going from there. But that's really good. I I think I'll do that. I will pick out three films that I want them to study that they have to watch that first week of school. My last question for you regards your legacy. I'm hoping that your career is far from over, but I wonder what have the last 44 years in the business and three Academy Awards taught you about, you know, your own identity as a makeup professional and what is the creative conversation like with yourself in regards to all the great work you have produced and the work you're still looking to produce? Well, I have retired just so you know. See, here's the thing. I wanted to ask you because I, I didn't want to assume. I'm sure you had mentioned it with a highwayman in 2019. But I also, I guess it's a candid way of me hoping we get to see more of your work soon. This is what I'm retired from. I am retired from getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go to work. That's what I'm retired from. Right now, I'm in the process of working with Paul Rubens, who is Pee Wee Herman. And he is doing the biography of his life, film biography. So I'm working with Paul for that, doing that. I also started a really wacky project with David Arquette, he bought the rights to Bozo the Clown and he wants to reimagine Bozo the Clown with an entire family. So they want to do eight Bozos. 
And he's going to do this as a kind of like a documentary. I'm not sure, you know, David, it's a little hard. He's so wacky to try to figure out what he wants. But he also wants to do live performances with these clowns. He also wants to do charity events. He's got this whole thing worked out that he wants to do this crazy whole you know, scenario with. So that's kind of a fun project. And then, like I said, I'm also recreating a lot of my makeups. I've already done Edward Scissorhands. Not too long ago, I just did Poison Ivy. The next one I'm going to do is actually with Paul Rubens. I'm going to recreate the Caesar Flickerman makeup on Paul or something like that. I'm going to do him as a capital man, something really wacky for fun. And I'm just going to start doing you know, stuff like that for my Instagram page, just to keep myself busy. And I'm also involving Yolanda Tusing, who did so many films with me as a hairstylist. So Yolanda is going to be helping me with a lot of those projects. It's like she did the Poison Ivy wig for me. And she also did the Edward Scissorhands wigs. And she is also retired because we're both tired of getting up at three in the morning. <laughs> but that's kind of where I am right now. And of course, you know, because of opening the school, I've also been having to do write all the syllabi. So that's been taking up a lot of time. It was funny, even during the pandemic, I thought, how did I ever have time to work? I'm so busy. You know, I mean, I kept myself busy during that whole time. And even like before that, after I retired, but he said, well, now that you have time to lay around, I said, I haven't laid around one day since I've been off work. All I do is go, go, go. And I just have all kinds of projects that I want to do. I want to go back to art school. Now I get to do stuff that I want to do that's fun. So I'm very busy. And because you're extra busy, V, I, I can't thank you enough for taking over an hour of your time to to talk to me. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have too. And I'm genuinely thrilled for, you know, your first round of students who are going to be coming through the program. And really congratulations, because I can't even imagine how much work it takes to to organize all of that. And And I appreciate the fact that you're doing this educational series. I think it's really important, even though we really didn't talk a lot about being a department head. I mean, we touched on it. I really appreciate that because so many people just talk to people about what they've done and not how they can, how other people can do it successfully. So that's really kind of great. Good idea. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to V for calling in to record this episode. And to Eric, who has been right by my side, taking care of the final mixing for all of these 50 episodes. If you want to learn more about V and her program, please visit Legends Makeup Academy at legendsmakeup.com. If you enjoy your program, please help us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. It really helps cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.